Episode 20, SmallSat Conference Part 2. You're listening to SpecsCast. Welcome to SpecsCast, a podcast discussing the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil, and today we're here with TJ. Hello. And Augie. Hi, everyone. And what makes this episode special is that Augie was just at the Small Satellite Conference 2016 at Utah State University. He live tweeted the whole thing through our Twitter at RIT Specs. There's like literally, I think, 250 tweets from three days of, three days of the conference. And um, it was just super awesome. And today we're going to kind of get a debrief from Augie break down who was there, what he saw, and um, some of the coolest and most interesting things that came out of that conference. To get started, Augie, can you explain kind of what this conference was about? Sure. Yeah, so this conference has been happening for about 30 years now. Um, I actually believe this is the 30th annual conference they've held. Um, They've been doing it in Utah State uh, since its inception, and it's all about... (coughs) small satellites. So that's anywhere from, you know, CubeSats to larger satellites like, you know, 50 kilogram, you know, very small mini fridge size satellites, um, none of the big giant government stuff. Um, This is all about um, small satellites. And it was interesting because they did a pre-conference workshop on Saturday and Sunday that I went to. And there was about a thousand people there, which was double what they had the year before. And then I believe before that, uh, it was even half of what it was. So it's been like almost exponentially growing. Um, they, they showed us plenty of charts and stuff like that. And it's really interesting to see the whole um, small set industry just take off with the advent of, you know, uh, mini electronic, the miniaturization of electronics. There's a lot of small launch vehicles coming out, um, like Launcher One uh, by Virgin Galactic. There's the Electron Rocket by Rocket Labs. And then there's uh, Fireflies Rocket, <coughs> which are all. Um, dedicated small satellite launchers. They're designed to take a a tiny payload to orbit for about $5 million, and that really is much, much lower in the cost that we've seen previously. Yeah, for sure. And plus, um, NASA has a few programs where universities and small groups uh, like Specs can hitch a ride as a secondary payload, and ULA, uh, the United Launch Alliance, has a similar program. So like the upper level of small sats would be more like Violet, what we saw when we talked to uh, the guys from the Cornell Space Systems Design Studio. Like, yeah, mini fridge size, I guess, right? Is that Would that be the upper limit of what a small sat is? Uh, it's it kind of loose definitions, but yeah, I would say that's about the upper limit. Um, anytime, anytime you're launching something that is the primary payload on a larger rocket, it's no longer a small sat. Right. Um, if you're la- if you're able to launch as a secondary payload, um, which basically just means you're taking up extra space, uh, you know whatever the primary payload was didn't take up all the mass and volume that was needed on the on the rocket, so they're offering um, the secondary space to another payload. So when you go to this conference, you you said there's what a thousand people there on the weekend, and around two thousand people um, later on in the week. Is it? Is it like a regular expo? Is it outside? Can you can you describe kind of what it was like walking around in there? Sure. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. On the over the weekend, it was a lot less crowded. I was able to find parking like right up against where it was. Um, this morning when I arrived, I had to walk probably a mile to get 
actually to the conference just because it was just so packed when I arrived. Um, they have catered catered lunch for everybody. Um, the the pricing is it's uh, six hundred and fifty dollars, I believe, um, for the week, and then there's a student price which is only about one seventy five. Um, so there's definitely a hefty student discount, and I'd say there was probably. 20% university students. It was, it was mainly commercial, but there was definitely a lot of um, university students as well as uh, NASA and government. You mean in terms of attendees or people with exhibits? Attendees, yep. Everybody had, a, a lot of groups had exhibits. There was a whole hallway uh, for universities to present their stuff. And I met a lot of organizations that are very similar to ours at Specs. Then there's uh, uh, industry People anywhere from Moog, Lockheed Martin, um, ULA, these large, large companies, all the way down to um, today. I met a guy that was from Quick to Space, and he was part of a three-person startup. So oh, wow. just super, like tons and tons of variability um, between you know what kind of industry people are there. What was the most surprising person that you met? Like person that you did not expect to see at the SmallSat conference? And then to follow up with that, what was the most unusual person you saw? Like, why are they here? <laughs> there was this kid that I met. He was from Johns Hopkins University. He was working on a nanosatellite uh, GNC system uh, for gra- grasping on to other CubeSats. Yeah, his name was Max Besescu. He's a junior, an undergraduate junior at the Johns Hopkins University. He presented in front of, you know, all thousand of us. Uh, over the weekend and he showed basically some videos of what he had built and he's got this uh, robotic like 3U CubeSat um, and another robotic 3U CubeSat um, and the primary one is able to on um, this frictionless airbed that he built um, chase down um, kind of follow using uh, GNC and using like visual learning it, it would follow this other CubeSat and it would grapple onto it and it could actually charge the other CubeSat or it could move it around and it could put it in like, you know, help it deorbit or, or put it on some different path, um, maybe some minor type of repairs. Um, and this kid was working on it by himself with pretty much no funding. He was an unfunded, um, just a student working in this guy's lab and they were going to cancel it. And he was like, nope, I'm just going to keep doing it. And he did it. And it was awesome. I was like totally impressed considering he was up there presenting with guys from NASA who had just talked about launching, you know, 15 satellites in the past year. Um, it was just cool to see one kid that, that, that did all this. And then to answer your second question, which was, you know, what was the most unusual, like, why are you here type moment? Um, FedEx, uh, <laughs> FedEx was actually there and they had a booth and I had to ask, they had all these like graphics of them like flying airplanes that said FedEx in space. So I asked them like FedEx, like that's interesting. Like what are you guys doing here? Like kind of directly asked them that question. And basically they said, um, this isn't their first year going to the small set conference either. They said they're focused on um, CubeSat and small satellite transportation on earth. And I had an interesting conversation with the guy about how, like, you know, you have a couple options. You can pay a ton of money to have it shipped uh, securely with, 
you know, some, some other company or you can take it through on a plane and fly it with yourself and end up with a ton of interesting conversations with the TSA. Because uh, once you build a CubeSat, you want to protect it and you have to take it to the launch site or wherever it's going to get loaded. Um, so they're kind of coming up with that type of solution um, where he was telling me it's pretty low cost. I didn't get the specific numbers, um, but they're basically able to um, work with you, whatever your scientific payload needs, whether it's biology or, or a, a expensive imaging device that's really sensitive um, to temperature fluctuations. They're kind of just doing uh, ground shipping solutions. But I just thought it was really interesting to see them there. Yeah, that's something that's so essential. Like if we build something here in Rochester, New York and need to launch it in Cape Canaveral, unless we're going to drive there ourselves, we got to get it there somehow. And Right. That's really interesting. And us throwing it in the back of our van isn't necessarily the most secure way we could bring our CubeSat. <laughs> I just wanted to the comment on the student who did the grappling CubeSat because that, like, it sounds like from your description, he made a CubeSat-sized BattleBot little competition, and that's that's really impressive because you know for those of you who watch the show, RIT has a team competing this year. You know they are dealing with 50 pounds, 75 pound weight limits, and they have to do a lot of constraints. So narrowing that down to a three U. To have something function on that scale is super, super impressive. Yeah, 3U is four four kilograms weight limit, and it's about the size of a shoebox. So to have all that functionality, I mean, it's I think it's awesome because like the t- the idea of a constellation, but also swarm small satellites. So a bunch all in close proximity, all working together, and um, to start thinking about and developing how these swarms of uh small sats can interact like grappling onto each other is is really impressive in itself not to mention his age like regardless of how old you are that's that's pretty impressive so so yeah that kind of reminds me i don't want to jump too far ahead but augie in your live tweeting you talked about a speaker who was talking about uh embedded linux in space and having linux servers running as the operating system for cubesats can you kind of go into that a little bit more yeah, I can definitely elaborate that on a bit. Um, I don't know too much about it. I was just kind of tweeting as he said things, and I just got back from the comments, so I haven't necessarily had time to digest everything and really research it. But essentially their point was nowadays with with things like Raspberry Pis and Arduino boards and, and all the, these like miniaturized components, there's no reason that you need to really optimize your your payload to work in only C and do the only specific applications that you need to do. Um, what you can do instead is send almost an entire OS, a standard OS that you're used to working with, um, and they have free libraries that let you integrate with with Python, JavaScript, the code that most people work with nowadays, um, and, and that allows you to um, really it just opens up programming satellites to the masses. And over lunch, I, I talked to some uh, NASA engineers, and their point, their big point about it was um, there are very few people in this country or even in the world that know how to program uh, flight software avionics um, for an actual spacecraft. You know, they'll, they'll get people in here that say, oh, you know, I've programmed uh, some flight software before. I, you know what I mean? I've worked on this and this and this. And they'll get there and they will have no idea what they're doing. It's just 
totally different. And so kind of moving away from the old style C and all this other, you know, the, the coding that they've been doing, they're trying to bring everything uh, into kind of modernization, mo- modernizing it, um, where you can actually write things in, in the programs that most of us know. Yeah, and um, these chips are super capable of like doing all this stuff. There's so much headroom, um, especially with the miniaturization of these things. Plus, it, it, I think it'll break down the barriers of having you know the technical know-how and just if someone has a good idea, they're closer to achieving it than um, and they won't hit that roadblock of well, if only I could have do could have done this, but. Oh, I was just going to add that um, there's there's other benefits too in that you can upgrade the software a lot more easily by running an entire OS. Um, you can utilize you know tons of different modules that are out there. Um, anything new that comes out on the ground is developed by somebody other than yourself. You can still upload it to your your satellite and test it out in the air. So I had uh, the privilege of going to two SpaceX talks at GDC. 2015 2016 where they talked about the programming environment and you know you're talking about you know running linux on satellites and the old program in python and javascript uh the most recent talk was on dragon 2 and their flight software is you know x86 processors c++ but their display software is actually running on chromium which is the uh, core engine of google chrome that's open source and most of it is done in JavaScript and WebGL. So their graphic visualization is all JavaScript for those controls. So that's, you know, for a aerospace project that is human rated, that has much stricter requirements than usual, that's super unusual. Yeah, astronauts' lives depend on this. Yeah, and they're confident that, you know, all the advantages of using a simpler language that is more widely supported uh, outweighs the potential risks. The, they can harness those advantages. Oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Exactly. So um, basically he said that using a programming language, programming environment that's actively used and by tens of thousands of developers, uh, in their opinion, is safer because you have tens of thousands of pairs of eyes looking at the code, looking at problems, writing those external libraries that solve problems. Um, and so because it's more modern and widely used, uh, they think it's safer and also makes it easier and because they're doing a full touchscreen uh, control system, they can change layouts and basically dis- optimize the user interface for the astronauts much more quicker than if you have a control panel, right? For Apollo, if you have all those steam dials, all those switches, and the astronauts will, I can't reach that switch. It's like, okay, well, we're going to have to go and fix the tooling to make you a new control panel that switch moved six inches. You just don't have that with a touchscreen. If you only have a, one person that knows how to code your program, then you can't have anybody check it over. But especially if you're using open, using open source things. Um, Augie, in one of your live tweets, you mentioned um, an open source repository for maybe some operating software or, or plugins. So the community can actively build the brains or at least parts of the brains of small sats and spacecraft together. Yep. And that's exactly what NASA wants. So the guys I was talking to basically gave this whole spiel to me about how NASA is is kind of still being NASA, and there are some parts of it where they want to open source it and utilize all like the community. Um, so what they're trying to do, and they're they're launching a new website in the next couple of weeks that has this whole repository for people to go 
work on the code, update it, come up with new ideas for it. Um, I have the guy's email and I'll get us the link at some point. Maybe we can even put it in the show notes. Spacecraft in general, especially um, like rockets and, and satellites built in the United States, are regulated by the International Trade in Arms regulations or, or ITAR, um, basically so that people that are not friendly to the U.S. can't get their hands on things and potentially use it uh, for, you know, military purposes. I'm wondering how this is going to work out with um, open sourcing, putting things on the Internet. You know, that's available to the world. It's not like they can censor it to the U.S. So I wonder how that fits in with um, ITAR. Now, what's interesting is that uh, ITAR actually deregulated most commercial satellites and most CubeSat projects uh, actually in fall 2014. Oh, yeah. That's why we could talk about Violet. Yeah. When Specs was working on the CubeSat launch initiative, you're using Google Google Drive, uh, things like that, which makes it really easy to share and collaborate. Uh, but when you're dealing with ITAR sensitive material, basically, once you're taking open Internet information and you're bringing it in and you're combining it in novel ways, uh, that's usually when things start falling under ITAR. Uh, we've had to look into, you know, secure servers. You know, having a server in a room under lock and key with no physical access, uh, which is kind of restricted for a brand new group. So we were very fortunate that uh, in fall of 2014, a lot of these commercial uh, satellites uh, got deregulated, which helps us a lot. Um, you know, you still want to be a little secretive. There are still some ITAR boundaries that you don't want to push. When you're working with uh, commercial off-the-shelf components, uh, they'll, especially um, with our avionics dev kit, that's an MSP 430-based uh, dev kit, and they have a, they gave us a copy of their uh, OS that works with that dev kit, um, and they are very restrictive of who gets to see that operating system code because you have to directly work with that to program the satellite. So the companies still have a lot of restrictions. So it's going to be interesting how those you know, open source GitHub collaborations end out because there's way more freedom now than there was two years ago, uh, but there's still rules looming off in the distance that you have to be careful of. To talk about some of the highlights that happened over the weekend, um, the first thing that I went to was uh, BioSentinel, which is a payload that's doing uh, – it's a biological assay, which piqued my interest because I'm a biomedical engineer by trade. And for a senior design project I did in college, um, I basically built my own uh, protein bioassay that looked at spectroscopy. And it was interesting to see another you know, bioassay going up in a CubeSat. This will only be the fourth one to ever go uh, – bioassay to go into space on a CubeSat platform. Uh, there's been Pharmaset, GeneSat, and another called O-Oreos. Can you explain what a bioassay is? Uh, bioassay is, a, is a basically a biological scientific study where you're examining some sort of biological reagents and chemicals like proteins, cells. It's basically just a bio, bio experiment is, is what it is. So the, the BioSentinel is a, a 6U that's going to launch uh, with EM1, which is SLS's first launch. Uh, it's scheduled in 2018. Uh, basically, what it does is it measures uh, the repair of DNA in a biological organism 
and then compares that to information to onboard physical radiation sensors. So they're looking at the impact of radiation on DNA, and this is very important when we start sending humans into deep space. Uh, the, the reason that BioSentinel is going on EM1 is because it's scheduled to do, a, I believe, a cislunar orbit. Maybe TJ can correct me on that one, but it's going much further out than just LEO. Uh, so that's why they're sending BioSentinel on this flight. Is the duration of the flight a, a major part, too? Because um, that's one major concern for humans going to Mars is the amount of just time spent in space. So is this just experimenting and saying, like, very far away from Earth, what are the effects? Yeah, so they're going to fly uh, through the, um, the Van Allen radiation belt that is uh, between us and the moon. So they're going to be heavily hit with a ton of radiation, which so far, no scientific studies have really been conducted in that radiation belt, bio studies, because the ISS flies about 200 miles above our heads, which is in LEO, which is much, much lower than this radiation belt. Um, so by sending these, um, this DNA out through the, the belt, they'll get to see kind of, hey, where are astronauts going to travel? Um, we've, we've sent astronauts through this before. Anytime we sent anybody to the moon, they had to go through this, um, and they came back okay. But uh, there's definitely a concern there with radiation and with sending people on long-term duration missions, uh, sending people to Mars. Uh, radiation could be a huge problem. So the duration of BioSentinel is about 12 to 18 months. Um, obviously, like most missions, there's options to extend it further as long as their systems are working properly. Um, but they're expecting a year worth of, of quality data. And they'll be over 500,000 kilometers uh, from Earth at some points in the mission. Wow. The Van Allen belts are just like periods of greater radiation. So you can kind of think of it as that we have this magnetic field around us that deflects most of these charged particles. However, there are parts in which those particles kind of get stuck because they are uh, charged, so they, get, they move along those field lines. Um, so you get these uh, inner belt and an outer belt where it's compared to open low Earth orbit space are much, much higher in radiation. So uh, fortunately, they, uh, the low end of those is around 1,000 kilometers, so the ISS, which is at roughly 350 kilometers, doesn't have to deal with them. But if you're going out to the moon, you're going out to a Mars or an asteroid, you have to pass through them. Also, there's a really interesting uh, spot called the South Atlantic Anomaly, which is built based off the... Uh, rotational axis of the Earth compared to the magnetic axis, where the tip of one of the inner radiation bells actually dips down into the ocean. So if you uh, do ground plots of satellites, if they pass a specific region, the magnetic fields are much closer, and you actually get radiation uh, damage to that. So they're really uh, interesting for most of the you know manned space travel we've been doing in the past 30 years. They haven't been an issue. But now that we want to go out past uh, geostationary orbit, that's when we have to go through them and you know, f find ways to minimize our time spent there. But it's not like once we go outside of this region, it's constant, really harsh radiation. It's like just a, just a belt of, yeah, of so charged particles. These are physical, not, well, these are clearly defined regions of much greater than average uh, charged particles. So we've extensively mapped these belts, so we can very clearly see the inner and outer belts. 
Uh, and once you get out of them, which is roughly uh, 60,000 kilometers away from the Earth, then you're just in general solar system radiation. So you're getting whatever the solar wind off the, the sun is. But these are taking that solar wind over time and concentrating it. Most gets deflected off, but some of it gets concentrated into these belts, uh, rings, etc. Yeah, it's cool that we can do this type of experiment and see what happens to biology with, you know, a small set. Yeah, so I'll, I'll list maybe one or two more from this weekend that, that you know, stuck out to me. Um, there was a CubeSat that was uh, basically a concept mission that was designed by some guys at New Mexico State. Um, uh, guys and women. Um, and this was essentially, uh, they called it DarkSide. A deployable atmospheric reconnaissance CubeSat with sputtering ion detector at Europa. <laughs> so now that's a backronym. <laughs> they, they tried hard to come up with that backronym. You, that's what I was gonna say. Um, but it was pretty cool. And essentially, they were saying the technology's out there, and they could uh, they could bring this on a, a, the JPL Europa flyby mission. And it's it's a three U four point four kilogram CubeSat that would um, be able to essentially. It would travel with uh, on JPL's satellite until it got close to Europa, and then it would release, and it would follow a different orbit where it could get a lot closer. And um, they would be measuring uh, basically drag on the vehicle, and they would bring a charged particle accelerator that would measure any uh, charged particle flux on Europa's surface. Um, so Europa has these these big plumes that that shoot out of it. And um, we, t- we talked about this during our live episode that we did in May, um, but basically someone in the audience asked them, you know, if, if, they, could, if they were going to try and fly through one of these uh, plumes, and, and it was funny, the guy on stage said that if they could detect it, they would, they would try that. Um, essentially, the plumes themselves have only been detected uh, one or two times uh, in history, which I hadn't known that. Um, I guess they're, they're pretty difficult to detect, I guess, because they're so far away. Um, but that's like, if you think about it, that's kind of where CubeSats are going to be really beneficial. It kind of opened my mind to that, that kind of process where you could bring to, to another planet or even eventually maybe another, um, another solar system, kind of like Alpha Centauri and Mark Zuckerberg and Stephen Hawking's kind of plan that they announced uh, in 2030 with a bunch of mini satellites. Um, if you send some sort of large mothership satellite, say to orbit Jupiter, and then you send a bunch of CubeSats that, that are released or even femtosats, even smaller than CubeSats, that, that just dive bomb in and take a bunch of pictures and images and measurements and send them back to the mothership, um, we could get a whole lot more information. And um, that seeing Darkseid's presentation kind of just opened my eyes to that and, and how, um, how important that could be because you, you wouldn't want to sacrifice your multi-million dollar satellite. You would want to keep that in orbit collecting data, but you could drop off these much more inexpensive satellites uh, to get, get much closer and, and more refined information. I mean, that's kind of the model that CubeSats have always held is that they are secondary payloads. They're relatively cheap, relatively expendable. You can still get great data in, you know, a small package. And um, I hope, like, with the lowering cost to orbit and increased access to space, I hope that extends outside LEO. Um, But, yeah, it's kind of like, why not? (laughs) Right? 
I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what what comes out of all this. It just blows my mind. All the, I guess, I, I'm still hyped from all the energy of this conference, uh, but just the fact that it has grown so much and industry now sees the that there's money in small satellites, and, and because there is money there, now we will really see kind of the the CubeSat um, become what it was designed to become, and it, it's something that provides everybody with with access to space um and that's only going to happen if we we have more people interested in it but why why is there money in it like i understand um some other models like um imaging satellites imaging constellations or communications um you know like high-speed internet with small satellite constellations but how would satellite or how would science missions be profitable i i'm not where's the money there that's a good point and I, and I think most of the money still comes from uh imaging and, and companies like planet labs who are trying to image the earth continuously with tons of constellations of small satellites um but there's also spacex now um has their office in seattle where they're working on an inter- uh basically providing internet to everybody and they're gonna they're gonna target people that you know don't have internet right now, uh, like, you know, in kind of um, far farther away, like third world countries that, that don't have um, a connection. And then they're going to expand where they're attacking the market that, um, you know, everybody that doesn't have a fiber optic cable, which is 90% of even Americans, uh, they're just now rolling out Google Fiber in Salt Lake City, but most places don't have that. And uh, it was funny during Gwen's speech, she, she asked, uh, you know, how many people have really slow internet and essentially everyone raised their hand and it, it was kind of a big joke. It's like we pay, you know, a hundred bucks a month for 50 megabytes and, and it's um, not anywhere near as fast as we want it to be. And so SpaceX is kind of pushing toward changing that. There's other companies like, like OneWeb that are, that are looking into this, you know, utilizing the spectrum that's out there to uh, provide internet. There's uh, much more, uh, scientific research, even from a biology perspective, um, every CRS mission uh, goes up with some sort of bio experiment. Um, there's been companies like AstraZeneca, a major pharmaceutical company, has done studies on the ISS. Yeah, so on CRS nine, uh, they sent uh, they sent a cell based uh, study, um, and and I think the industry is kind of just feeding off itself. So as the costs are coming down. Um, from not just reusability, not just from SpaceX, you know, lowering the cost uh, for, for larger satellites. Um, there's these dedicated launchers that are now coming out. Um, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, there's Electron by Rocket Labs, there's Firefly, there's uh, Launcher One. Um, these are basically very, very low cost compared to what they had been before. And they're going to be dedicated to launching CubeSats. So now that it's cheaper to launch these small sats, a much, much more... Um, missions become economically feasible. As soon as you start the ball rolling, you know, costs are going to come down more because there's higher demand for it um, and there's more money in the industry. And then when there's more money in the industry and as things become cheaper, more people become interested in it. And I think it's finally reached that critical mass where it's it's going. It's just going to continue with, you know, this uh, maybe not exponential growth, but this immense growth that it's been having, I think it's going to continue. Yeah, also the the availability of access to space has rapidly increased, especially in the past couple of years, where you know SpaceX efforts, which we'll get into, uh, but ULA has a CubeSat program for universities. 
Uh, NASA has programs, but there's, you know, not uh, much more rockets going up in space, but more rockets that can carry one CubeSat or 10 CubeSats, uh, which gives you more opportunities more often, which gives more groups the opportunity to, you know, design an experiment and actually get to try that out. And for commercial entities, uh, there are opportunities to send up 10 CubeSats in a swarm or 50 CubeSats. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Like, if you have just a few um, extra slots on, you know, um, United Launch Alliance rocket, that's super competitive because there's only a couple slots on the one rocket. But now if you have all these different launch providers, even if the cost stays the same, there's just more opportunities. So more people can Mm -hmm. get involved. Yeah, and what's really going to be interesting in the next couple months is that Sherpa which is a secondary payload on a commercial satellite launched by SpaceX, is actually a it's, it's one satellite package that SpaceX integrates, but it's actually a launcher for 50 CubeSats of various sizes. So an outside company saw a business case to corral 50 different uh, CubeSat programs, get all those hardware integrated, and then they can, in one go, give it to a launch provider to launch. So they're launching their first one uh from that, and there was just a, uh, an article that says they see a lot of demand for that, and they're ready. They're in the process of booking their second one, so another 50. So that's amazing. So is Sherpa um, different from a Peapod, or is it just a um, a structure or, or you know a sub vehicle that integrates a bunch of different Peapods to have 50 CubeSats capacity, 50U capacity of CubeSats? From what I understand, I haven't researched Sherpa extensively. Uh, Sherpa is a secondary payload that's riding on a commercial launch. Uh, so SpaceX is taking that secondary payload and integrating it in a way to not interfere with the primary satellite. Uh, and then it would, I believe, it still has the same spring release mechanism. It could be very similar to the Peapod. Everything TJ said so far is is correct. I was talking to uh, Spaceflight today, which is a company that does Sherpa, and they just announced uh, that they're doing four more missions with SpaceX over the next uh, couple years, and uh, it'll be the same kind of thing, exactly what TJ is talking about. Um, but the mechanism that they use to deploy, uh, and this is interesting because I asked the guy at Spaceflight that specific question. Um, they're gonna, they're willing to do any type. Uh, they they worked with Peapods. Uh, they work with all, all the different types of uh, long, like. Uh, release mechanisms that are out there, they're going to integrate with their system. Oh, wow. So it's not not limited to the CubeSat, Cal Poly CubeSat standard specification. If As long as you have a small sat that kind of fits their requirements or integrates with one of many different um, solutions, that, wow. Wow. And, and it looks like they have a pretty cozy relationship with SpaceX as well. So I think it'll be interesting to see all the... Uh, um, all the launches that are definitely coming, they seem like they have a, a pretty tight relationship and it'll be interesting to see. Hey, let me do one last one. Uh, this this one stuck out to me. I mean, I could talk about this all day, but um, this one's called MakerSat. And uh, some of you guys may, may have heard of this. I don't know if Phil or, or TJ have heard of it. Um, it's, it's by uh, Northwest Nazarene University. And they did a presentation... Um, for the, the maker set, and they're actually launching one. They're scheduled to launch on Alana 20 in 2017. Um, and this is uh, basically 3D printing a CubeSat on the ISS. Um, so what's great about that is that you don't need to worry 
about your CubeSat surviving all the vibration analysis, all the um, you know the heat and the temperature fluctuations, and just all the crazy things that come with bringing something from the Earth into space. Um, you can avoid all of that by just 3D printing all the parts in the ISS. And they've really developed this, this awesome modular thing. Um, I might have a video of it somewhere. He, he put one together on stage. It's just like Legos that click together. And uh, apparently it only takes five minutes for the astronauts on the ISS because crew time is super, super valuable. It's almost it's like our, our astronauts up there are, are almost constantly working. Um, they only get a few hours a day of, of break and um, so their time is, is super, super valuable because they're running hundreds of experiments. And so they've really basically developed this way for um, astronauts to 3D print a CubeSat, a 1U CubeSat that's simple to assemble. It only takes five minutes. It snaps together with six PCB solar panel assemblies, and it eliminates the need for um, any small fasteners, any tedious assembly. Uh, it's like Lego brick type thing, and it, it, it's quite awesome. Um, you should... Uh, you should Google it if you're interested. It's, um, I think uh, a lot of interesting things could come out of it. I just think that with with um, a, as we get better at 3D printing components and we get say different 3D printers into low Earth orbit, like say you know printers that can do nylon and stuff that doesn't just do ABS and PLA and, and does like um, metal and and kind of the, the the bulk stuff, we can just ship a rocket full of metal and then we can just make everything in space and I think that this is the the very very beginning of that. So this would be assembling you know the vehicle that carries an experiment but with the material and the you know payload or the experiment that would be done be sent separately to the ISS and then an astronaut would take experiment A plug it into MakerSat B and then shoot it out through a peapod. You can print the structure, and you can make a and what something that looks like a cubesat. But how how would you get the scientific value from from that type of vehicle? Right. Okay. So so one one benefit right away is that um, if there's some payload on Earth that you need to send up, you know, um, like say a bioassay or just some experiment, you're obviously not going to 3D print in space. You can include it in say the the trunk of of dragony you don't need to deal with all the space constraints that come with a peapod um you can just send up the experiment in something that doesn't need to deploy doesn't need to protect it from the space environment it can just go into something that can carry it to the iss um but what they're working on first is uh there's they're doing a, a payload that looks at polymer degradation um, UV degradation is actually a huge thing in orbit. I didn't know a whole lot about this, and, and I just learned it all from the presentation. But basically because of outgassing, monoatomic oxygen erosion, and then the UV degradation, a lot of polymers lose mass and therefore lose their structural integrity. Uh, they did an ISS experiment a couple years back where they left uh, dozens of polymers, um, just different materials, out of the International Space Station, like outside. And over the course of four years, when they pulled them back in, they like – totally eroded. Um, a lot of polymers were just totally destroyed. And that's going to be important as we move to you know, later, lower cost materials. We need to know what's going to work and what isn't. And what their maker set is going to do, at least their first mission, is they're going to be monitoring the mass loss of these polymers continuously during its orbit. So they're basically flying um, these small piezo-resistive micro-cantilevers that can measure the, the, the degradation of the polymers and they'll be able to send that data back. Um, so that, I guess, um, you, you, 
I guess I maybe am not fully answering your question. I mean, we don't know right now. We have to we have to discover what the capabilities are and what the potential is with this type of technology before we can kind of extra extrapolate. But I, I see the the purpose and the, the idea behind assembling something in space already. Do you know what type of polymer they're using? Do you know if it is ABS or like some special kind? They're going to test ABS. That's going to be in their year-long mission. Um, I know ABS is in there. Um, but I, I think your question is more along the lines of what are they building the actual satellite out of? Is it some specialty exotic plastic that no one has ever heard of? I don't think so. It was common stuff that they talked about. And I don't think, honestly, that they're going to be 3D printing it on the ISS for Alana 20. I think they're launching a CubeSat and they're going to test what polymers are going to work best. And then they're going to develop the um, capability to just like they've, they've already developed the capability for the 3d printer. I guess it's just a question of what material to use. And so that may be the route they're going, but honestly, I, I may be, um, misinforming our listeners and, uh, I would recommend just Googling, uh, MakerSat. It's, uh, Northwest Nazarene university. And, and you could definitely learn more. I envision like eventually long-term, Maker set what like Maker Set Corporation, a giant factory, you know, and you can just with all this open source stuff, you just upload like Shapeways. You can make a three D thing and just order it and have it shipped to your door. So I just imagine like a, a website where you just pick and choose what you need your cube set to be, and then order it, and it'll be made and like spat out the back. <laughs> Oh, I think it's really cool, and, you know, the cube shape of a CubeSat is, you know, structural rigidity and also to maximize volume. Uh, if you have just a weight limit, so if you have, a, you know, Dragon Capsule or a Cygnus Capsule, you're just bringing mass up, and then you can use 3D printer or use on-orbit manufacturing to rearrange those, you know, those atoms. There's other shapes, depending on the mission, that would be more suitable right than just a cube uh so i think that's really really interesting uh and that opens up a lot of more possibilities from a high level design you know you don't have to fit it into a cube you don't have to maximize volume that's a really interesting idea and i think we're gonna see some crazy looking satellites <laughs> that's that's the real promise of you know on-orbit manufacturing like right now Pretty much everything that goes into space is a cube or a cylinder because you want to maximize volume and everything goes up on a rocket. And it's really hard to get something larger uh, diameter than the rocket. So, you know, in the far future, when we can build large, complex structures entirely in space, you can do some crazy radical designs uh, from a very functional uh, point of view, but also very aesthetic uh, which I think is really cool. Uh, you know, Star Trek, all their ships have that very sleek saucer shape. For a capsule, that sort of teardrop shape kind of emerged as the ideal design. Well, we don't know what the ideal design really is for satellites because we've been so constrained. So, like, if we have all this freedom, we're going to get some bad designs, we're going to get some good designs, and eventually we're going to get the best design. We just have to try them all. Yeah, I really like looking at uh, the history of satellite designs because there are some really awesome wonky-looking shapes, especially in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, nowadays, you have you know several large satellite manufacturers who develop a, a satellite bus, 
and then companies purchase that and they put extra antenna, extra uh, solar panels on there, and that kind of makes them unique. Um, but back when you know in each satellite was custom designed and custom built, you had some really crazy looking designs. It would be cool to get the small set, you know, the 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 community that sort of amateur satellite building community access to to those wild ideas because crazy things yeah and the maker fair community as well i mean if you can have it so you just 3d print experiments in space uh i think that will open up uh the industry to a lot of people who may not have been previously interested in space because they didn't want to go with go through all the software the development the avionics the stuff that it takes to launch a satellite um it could be pretty awesome uh, what what were your thoughts on um, your the weekend uh, Saturday and Sunday at the Small Sat conference? Um, you know, based on kind of the general emotions of the attendees as well as the people presenting and uh, I, I think it was uh, they represented uh, University of Utah and the organizers did a really good job at setting it up so it was a very casual atmosphere. Um, I went by myself. I went in with it knowing nobody. And I met hundreds of people really easily. Um, it was like you could walk up to anybody, uh, ask them what they did, shake their hand, tell them what you did. You know, it, it kind of made me wish I had you guys there too because uh, it would have been great to kind of uh, have a team and we could split off, gather intel, meet a ton of people, come back together and, and talk about things and discuss things. And uh, I think uh, had I had uh, you guys there or a few other people from Specs. Um, I would have been uh, much more um, – I would have wanted to go for the whole week and stayed there the whole time. Um, I have to work this week, uh, so I, I was only able to go three days, uh, basically through half the conference. Um, but even if I ha- did have the opportunity to go more, I kind of feel like I've um, s- soaked up as much knowledge as my brain can absorb. At RIT Space Exploration, we're just really breaking into this community. Um, and it's great to see how casual and how welcoming it can be and also the potential it has for the future. I think it's just gotten me. I didn't think I could get more excited about specs, but um, this is really you know, making me very optimistic for the future. Well, I think that that concludes our two part coverage of the SmallSat Conference 2016. Uh, in Logan, Utah, hosted by the Utah State University. You can find all the information about the SmallSat conference uh, on smallsat.org. It took place on August 6th, which was a Saturday, all the way through the next Thursday. And thanks again, Augie, for being there, representing Specs. And we're building this community together, and I hope that SpecsCast can be just one outlet to really bring everybody together and have these conversations try to be as impartial as possible and just geek out about space. So as always, you can get in touch with us through our email at specscast at gmail.com or Twitter at RIT Specs. You can also find Specs on Facebook at facebook.com slash RIT Specs. Our music is by Kevin Hartnell. You were live tweeting. You tweeted... 150 times in three days it was funny uh jeff faust he's a big uh, space reporter in the industry and and i was sitting down the first day in, in the morning and i was just tweeting off my phone just like blasting them off and i would see his tweets come in a little bit later um and i like look over 
And I see this guy like typing away on his laptop and then the tweet pops up and I'm like, that kind of looks like him. And like, <laughs> I, I was sitting literally across the aisle from him in this thousand person room. It was pretty awesome. Uh, 